Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and it's time for the News Roundup. Ian continues to barrel its way up the east coast of the U.S. For those keeping count, we're less than 40 days away from the midterms. And a moving object 7 million miles away sparked scenes of much joy at NASA. We have a lot to discuss, so let's start with the storm that the president has called historic. Joining us here in Washington, D.C. is Anita Kumar. She's senior editor for Standards and Ethics at Politico. Hi, Anita. Thanks for being here. Hi, great to be back with you. Also in D.C., Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Susan, welcome back. Hey, Jen. Good to be here. And Molly Ball is the national political correspondent at Time Magazine. Molly, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. President Biden says Hurricane Ian may be the deadliest storm in Florida's history. At this point, we we don't know, but we are learning more about the devastation it's left behind across a wide swath of Florida. Ian was downgraded to a tropical storm as it made its way across Florida. It's since regained strength and is expected to make landfall again close to Charleston and South Carolina. Susan, what do we know about the damage so far? We know that uh, 2 million people are without power. Uh, We don't know what the death toll will turn out to be. We had President Biden suggesting it might be a death toll we have never seen before. You look at these pictures on television and the devastation of of whole towns just uh, crushed in the hurricane's wake are, are quite remarkable. And of course, Ian is not over with us yet. We'll be looking to see what happens in South Carolina. And the most alarming thing about Ian is that it's the latest in a new kind of hurricane that gains intensity as it hits the Gulf Coast as it it goes over land. That's a reflection of climate change, and it's something we're going to be dealing with for some time to come. Emily Lane lives 30 minutes south of St. Petersburg, Florida. She's a 1A listener, and she was in touch with us earlier this week. Well, (laughs) it's my home state. And it makes me kind of sad, really, that we had years and years and years of warning, and we didn't listen. And I'm getting a little choky right now because it's going to change forever. Places that I loved as a kid and as an adult aren't going to be here in 50 years, at least not the way they are from my memory. And that's really sad. We also heard from Corrine in Bradenton, Florida, who says, I'm sixth generation Floridian and I've lived here my whole life. I've never, ever experienced a storm like this one. I'm praying for a quick recovery and safety for all who's been affected by Ian. Now, on Thursday, the president met with FEMA officials and approved Governor Ron DeSantis's request for emergency assistance. Everyone hard at work in Florida right now deserves our thanks. And when the conditions allow it, I'm going to be going to Florida to thank them personally. We're going to do our best to build Florida back as quickly as possible, but we're not going to be leaving. We're going to build it back with the state and local government. However long it takes, we're going to be there. Molly, what has the state and federal response been to the storm leading up to and now nearly 48 hours after it made landfall? 
Uh, well, we have seen, as the president said, uh, coordination between the state and federal governments, and uh, FEMA coming in to assist people. Uh, sadly, there, there's a routine to these things. You know, there's a there's a way that uh, these storms are responded to. This, as but as Susan said, this is quite an extraordinary storm uh, in its scope and scale, and we don't know. Uh, exactly uh, how how vast the devastation is going to be. Uh, but so far, we do see uh, federal resources mobilizing immediately and uh, and the and the state accepting, you know, the assistance from the federal government, the president and governor, who, of course, are not exactly political allies, have have both really risen above all of that and and put politics aside in order to uh, you know get that disaster declaration out the door and and get the the federal help as quickly as possible where it needs to go. Well, in the aftermath of Ian, efforts across Florida will slowly start turning from recovery to rebuilding. One early estimate pegs the potential reconstruction cost at two hundred fifty eight billion dollars. That's according to CoreLogic, a property analytics firm. On Thursday, we spoke to FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell. We deployed federal resources starting uh, several days ago. Uh, We had teams pre-staged in Orlando. We had other teams in Tallahassee, as well as some of our commodities in Alabama. Uh, We're already starting now that the storm has passed in certain parts of the state. We're starting to move the commodities in. And we're going to continue to move resources in as we identify what the impacts are and what the greatest needs are. We'll continue to do that throughout this recovery process. Anita, how much scrutiny will FEMA be under for both how it responds to Ian and the ongoing response to those still without power in Puerto Rico? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a spotlight on FEMA. There will be on the president and the governor as well. But um, FEMA, you know, has been plagued over the years with, uh, you know, gripes and complaints that there's a lot of layers of bureaucracy, red tape, you know, botched responses. You know, we can famously remember when President Bush was president and the response to Hurricane Katrina um, in New Orleans and, and the surrounding area. So there'll be a lot of people looking to this new administrator um, who's actually going to be in Florida uh, pretty soon here and how she responds. And, you know, so far what people are saying is she's she is, you know, very hands on. She is uh, visiting various places, visiting Florida, but she's also been to Puerto Rico uh, and other places that have been hit by natural disasters. So there'll be a lot of people uh, looking and there will be also, as Molly mentioned, a lot of people sort of looking at how the president and the governor get along and sort of what those politics are like or, you know, if they sort of put that aside. So far they have and, um, you know, we'll see what happens in the coming days. Hard to do that sometimes during election season, though. Jim in Lake Worth, Florida says, I think those 100, 500 and 1,000 year flood projections all need some serious alteration. Ask the folks in Ellicott City, Maryland, who were told the horrible flooding in July 20. 2016 was a once-in-a-century event, only to have an exact replica less than two years later. Molly, what conversations is this opening about not just how we prepare for these, these storms and this flooding, but in the rebuilding process, how we approach that to make places more resilient? Right. I mean, I think there's two aspects of that. On the one hand, you have the climate change conversation, which is an ongoing conversation that I think many people are familiar with at this point. Uh, you know, you can't attribute any particular weather event uh, to climate change, but we do know that, as Susan mentioned, it is causing these storms to be more intense and more frequent and potentially more devastating. Uh, and 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 particularly for Floridians, uh, this is something that is not just something that they see during hurricanes, right? I 
I mean, you get flooding in the streets of Miami every time there's a heavy rain. So people in coastal communities know about these effects even when there's not a, a 500 or 100 or 1,000 year storm going on. But this certainly makes it more acute and brings it home to people uh, how real these effects are in people's lives and what needs to be done about it. And then you have the more sort of practical on the ground uh, aspects of it. Uh, when you come to the rebuilding process about, you know, where are people allowed to build? What are they allowed to build? How, whether they can get insurance, whether from the government or private insurers, there's an ongoing property insurance crisis going on in Florida that's actually been an issue uh, in Governor DeSantis's current re-election race uh, because the state has a role in that and he's been criticized uh, for not uh, uh, bringing those rates down, making them more available to people. Uh, so I think that is also going to be a conversation once the storm has passed and it's time for people to dig out and, and either rebuild or not. Susan, we were speaking to Tom Hudson. He's the chief content officer here at WAMU, but he covered Florida for a long time. And he said every hurricane in Florida is politicized. Do you see the the fight for federal funds to cover rebuilding and reconstruction becoming politicized for DeSantis as we get closer to November? Well, it, his performance will definitely be uh, something that voters will be watching for. We know that for both presidents and governors and mayors, the ability to be focused on and effective at responding to natural disasters is is just about as powerful a political issue as there can be. Although the political effect this time has been the reverse of the usual because, of course, uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, the governor of Florida, has made no secret that he wants to run for president. He has uh, ridiculed President Biden. He's referred to him as Brandon, which is a way to use a vulgarity without using a vulgarity. And yet now the two men have talked and they are speaking in a positive way about one another. And I wonder if, if unlike many of these uh, uh, crises, if this one might actually demonstrate the way in which public officials can and should work across party lines to get things done for people. At the same time, Anita, we're hearing from lots of people listening to our conversation uh, criticizing DeSantis for not voting for Superstorm Sandy aid when he was a congressman. So how does that play into what he's asking for for Florida now? Yeah, I've seen some of that uh you know, publicity in the last day or two. You know, I think that we see this all the time with politicians and Ron DeSantis is not unusual in this regard, which is you find some of these um, conservative Republicans who, you know, are not for bigger government, they're for smaller government, they vote against certain spending. And then when something happens to their particular state um, or their region, you know, they are there asking for help, uh, you know, because they need it. Um, he, you know, the the state is not going to get through this without federal help, and he is well aware of that. Uh, both, you know, that's a political issue, but it's also just he's on the ground there seeing what needs to be done with rescue, with, uh, you know, housing, with food. And, and the reality is that the, you know, the state does need that federal funding. We got this comment from Laurel who says the amplification of extreme weather due to climate change makes phrases like 500-year flood or 100-year storm meaningless. We're in a new world now. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll continue our discussion of the week's biggest stories after the break. You're listening to the News Roundup. On Tuesday, Meta, that's the parent company of Facebook, announced it had removed from its sites an effort to influence the U.S. election backed by China. 
Molly, what do we know about these fake accounts and China's strategy? Well, I think there's a couple interesting things about this announcement. First of all, they announced that they had simultaneously disrupted two different sets of uh, covert influence operations, one out of Russia and one out of China. Now, at this point, we're all very familiar with what these operations out of Russia look like, right? This was an issue uh, back, going back to, to 2016 and, you know, their fake accounts pretending to be Americans or fake organizations, even fake news sites uh, pretending to... Uh, in, uh, to have opinions about American politics and 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 to sort of uh, create the impression that American you know public opinion is moving in some direction or another or criticize American political actors and that sort of thing, uh, but what Meta, the pa- Facebook parent company, said was uh, you know we're, we've this was a very particularly large operation out of Russia they disrupted, but they haven't seen this out of China before, and so now for the first time this was a relatively small operation out of China, uh, but it. But it, but they are starting to see this kind of activity come out of China now, and so that's why it's significant. I think the other thing significant about this announcement is that you have, uh, you know, Facebook, uh, which has been sort of in the doghouse with American policymakers and public opinion, trying to show that they're getting ahead of this stuff, trying to show that they're being proactive, trying to get ahead of potential effects to regulate or crack down on the role of social media uh, in our politics and in potential, you know, misinformation and disinformation campaigns, particularly when it comes to foreign actors. Well, and and again, you said the network from China was relatively small. It consisted of 92 accounts across Facebook and Instagram, and they collectively gained around 280 followers. So that's not, you know, as far as social media goes, and not a lot of clout. But how concerned should we be about interference from China or other countries ahead of the midterms, Molly? I don't think we know. Um, And uh, these tend to be things that we sort of find out after the fact. But as you said, uh, this is this was a pretty small operation. Uh, so it does seem that the significance of this is more the fact of it than, than the scope of it. I don't think that the statement was, was intended to say, you know, uh, everything you know about the election must be called into question because China is meddling. It's more just we're starting to see this and it's something that we should continue to watch out for. Well, let's stay with the midterms. They're traditionally considered a referendum on the party in power and the president. But these midterms seem different with Donald Trump looming over the Republican Party. Trump is a more popular Google search than President Biden. Susan, what makes these midterms unique? Well, you know, midterms are usually a referendum on the current president. But this midterm is turning out to be a referendum on on two presidents, the current one and the previous one. And that is actually not something we have seen in modern times. In modern times, we have not seen a former president continue to be the kind of political force in our day-to-day politics that Donald Trump has continued to be. This has been a mixed blessing for Republican candidates. Uh, Donald Trump continues to have a really fervent following. He's been able to turn out his supporters in the primaries. Uh, Many of his, uh, the the people he endorsed in contested Republican primaries won their nomination. And so on the one hand, he'll probably be able, we, we assume he'll be able to turn out those supporters in the general election. But Democrats view Trump's endorsement and embrace as toxic among many independent voters. Uh, the, and, and so perhaps he'll turn out not only his supporters, but also his opponents. And it gives Democrats a chance to talk not about uh, President Biden's record on inflation, where he has some vulnerability, but instead on statements and positions taken by the guy he replaced. Anita, your thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. I think there are two things. I mean, there's so many things unusual about Donald Trump, but there's two things that I'm sort of looking at in this election. It's not just that it's a referendum on Donald Trump, but we're still talking about the 2020 election. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's, you know, that's unusual, right? We're still seeing candidates and campaigns sort of weighing in on what happened in the 2020 election. Of course, we know what happened. Joe Biden won. But the fact that some candidates are still saying Joe Biden didn't legitimately win and that Donald Trump won is is pretty interesting two years in. The other thing I'm really watching is uh, it's reminding me a little bit of 2016, which is all these investigations into uh, Donald Trump, right? We're seeing those in in New York and in Georgia and, of course, at the federal level as well. It's not the same as 2016, but, of course, we, people might remember that you know, the FBI was investigating uh, the circumstances around Hillary Clinton's emails and didn't want to or said they didn't want to do anything too close to the election to impact that. And of course, Hillary Clinton says that that they did do that and it did impact that. So I'm sort of interested as Donald Trump decides whether to run and as we ha- you know get to these midterms, how do all these looming investigations into him and his family uh, and his business impact things? You know, are people really watching that? Uh, or how does Donald Trump use it to gain support? That's what he's always done in his, uh, you know, political career is he says that people are out to get him. It's a witch hunt. So he's using these investigations to try to drum up support. Well, let's zoom in on one race that's getting a lot of attention in the midterms. That's the Pennsylvania governor's race. A 2019 interview surfaced this week of Republican nominee for governor Doug Mastriano. On the show Smart Talk from WITF, Mastriano said women who get abortions under legislation he proposed could be charged with murder. Would that woman who decided to have an abortion, which would be considered an illegal abortion, be charged with murder? Okay, let's go back to the basic question there. Is that a human being? Is that a little boy or girl? If it is, it deserves equal protection on the law. So you're saying yes? Yes, I am. The 2019 Bill Mastriano, co-sponsored as a state senator, would have banned abortion if fetal cardiac activity was detected, which would be at about six weeks. And the legislation he's talking about in that 2019 interview didn't pass in Pennsylvania. Mastriano is a controversial nominee. He falsely claimed Donald Trump won Pennsylvania in 2020. He was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee to testify about efforts to overturn the election results. I'm curious to hear from each of you whether you think this tape of him from 2019 is likely to change his odds of becoming Pennsylvania's governor. Molly? Well, yes and no. I think Mastriano was already seen as an underdog in this race because of his extreme positions on many issues. He is, you know, he fits that trend Susan was talking about of Trump-endorsed candidates who are seen as a poor fit for the general election, particularly in a swing state like Pennsylvania. I mean, this is a candidate who's been all but abandoned by the Republican Governors Association because they just think he's too far out there to win, doesn't speak to the mainstream media, as you said, uh, believes the election was stolen and all of those sorts of things, um, and is, is really barely raising money uh, for his campaign. Now, it'll still be a close race. Pennsylvania is a tough, uh, a close state. Uh, but, you know, I think the other factor that this spotlights uh, that that wasn't really touched on previously is just how uh, how 
big the abortion issue is playing, particularly in gubernatorial races, but also at the federal level. I think you, more than anything, any other single factor in this midterm election that has made it uh, more confusing than the normal sort of just backlash to the sitting president is the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, because we have seen an unprecedented uh, mobilization, particularly uh, of women already in in some of the elections leading up to this point uh, and in the sort of tea leaves that we're seeing uh, going into November. So it still looks like a potential good year for Republicans, but we're seeing the a, a much more uh, uncertain political landscape uh, and, and most of the political uh, observers that I talk to believe it, it, that it, the abortion decision is the biggest factor there. Well, another headline related to abortion this week came out of Idaho. The University of Idaho told staff last Friday they could be fired or charged with a crime for talking about abortion or contraception. Rebecca Gibran is CEO of Planned Parenthood Great Northwest. She called the university's memo a, quote, canary in the coal mine. Uh, Susan, Talk about the, the, the temperature right now in the country. How likely do you think it is that we could see other public universities have similar rules? Well, this has been, this has been quite extraordinary. Now, to keep, to keep in mind, this involves not only uh, promoting abortion services or abortion rights in Idaho on campus. It, it prevents you from talking about offering contraception. Uh, and this is something that the most avid supporters of abortion rights have warned could be ahead that the uh, that there will be uh, attacks not only on who can get an abortion services and what what point during their pregnancy, but whether they can have easy and legal access to contraception. And that's one reason this Idaho case has attracted so much attention. It's the the Idaho the Idaho has passed a couple laws on abortion since Roe v. Wade that have uh, that have tightened uh, access to abortion. But this law on contraception dates back a while, back to 1972, and it's the Roe v. Wade decision I think that cleared the way for that law to go into effect after not being in effect for a while. I think I think this is the kind of thing we're gonna we we are gonna see in other states. Uh, in some of the most conservative states, uh, efforts to not only deny abortion services very broadly, but also to go after at least some forms of contraception. Well, we heard Rebecca Gibran uh, call the university's memo again a, a canary in the coal mine. And Anita, you know, ahead of the Dobbs decision, choice advocates were saying this is a slippery slope. We're going to see other issues emerge as a result of the overturning of Roe? I mean, what are we seeing nationally? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And it's and it's slowly happening in that, you know, we see states acting. Now we're seeing these public institutions or state-funded institutions like the university acting. You know, we are seeing uh, pharmacists and doctors saying they're not sure everybody's getting uh, the medication they should because of fears about certain certain restrictions um, at the state level. So we're seeing just a lot of different things that you know perhaps some people didn't see uh, from that Dobbs de- decision that have sort of come out over time, and I, I think we're going to continue to see that. This university issue in particular could impact, of course, each state has its own laws, but as Susan said, it really could impact any 
state that has a restriction, uh, all these universities and schools that are getting money from the state, not all money, just some, can say, look, we have to do certain things now because of these state laws. So I I think this is just the beginning, and we're going to see some other things uh, like this around the country. President Biden announced a goal to eliminate hunger in the United States by 2030 on Wednesday. This goal is within our reach. Just look at how far we've come on child poverty. 30 years ago, as was referenced, one in four children lived below the poverty line. Today, one in 20 live below the poverty line. So I know we can take tackle hunger as well. And I've released a national strategy to meet that bold goal. The address came at, at the first White House conference on hunger since 1969, when President Nixon delivered his own address. Until this moment in our history as a nation, the central question has been, whether we as a nation would accept the problem of malnourishment as a national responsibility. That moment is past. Again, that was President Nixon speaking in 1969. Biden is promising to invest $8 billion in public and private programs to help reach the goal of ending hunger. 13.5 million U.S. households were food insecure in 2021. That's roughly 33 million people in total, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Anita, how is Biden planning to reach such an ambitious goal in the next eight years? Yeah, I mean, he's talking about, of course, uh, public money. Uh, He'll need Congress's help on that. But he's also talking about uh, private sector. So, uh, you know, corporations and and others raising money or giving money. And he, you know, sort of suggests that the corporate world could play a bigger role than they're doing right now to make food available and nutritious food available in places where the supply, you know, is inadequate. So he's looking at a, at a variety of different things. He acknowledged that some of those things he's not able to do without Congress, but some of those things he could look at through his agencies or through executive action. So these are things like expanding free school meals to more children, uh, transport offering transportation uh, to more people who do not have access to grocery stores or farmers markets or places where they could get nutritious food. So, uh, you know, all different kinds of things. And I think he feels that this is something that, you know, as you mentioned, it's gotten some attention, but it hasn't had this, you know, sort of holistic approach, this kind of conference and uh, of people coming together. And there were, you know, 500 people there, a thousand others virtually. He's wanting to get a lot of people together to sort of brainstorm about other ways and pass forward on this issue. Molly, why is the president focusing on this now? Uh, well, you know, honestly, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, this is this was a chance for the White House to use its convening power to draw attention to an issue that it feels is important. And that's, you know, somewhat outside of the normal partisan fray, but at a time when a lot of people are feeling uh, particularly anxious about the economy, you know, with inflation still uh, pressuring people's budgets and, and food costs in particular having risen, uh, a chance for the White House to bring people together and, and, and talk about how we can solve some of the, the pressing problems facing our country. Well, speaking about uh, inflation, we got this comment from Craig in Arizona who says, can you talk about how food industry profits have risen this past year and contribute to the inflation rate? This seems like this is a taboo subject among the media. Well, Craig, I I have to say that's something we should look into for a future show. Thanks for that comment. Well, as we head into the break, Lizzo, the singer, rapper, and classically trained flautist, took a quick break from her concert set list 
Washington, D.C. on Thursday night to make history. At the show, she played a crystal flute that was once owned by former President James Madison. It was briefly loaned to her by the Library of Congress at her show. We're discussing the week's top stories with Anita Kumar from Politico, Susan Page from USA Today, and Molly Ball from Time Magazine. We got this comment from Sandra who says, I noticed DeSantis called Hurricane Ian a biblical event. As a practicing Christian myself, I see this as a cynical political ploy to avoid talking about climate change. We'll be back with more after the break. You're listening to the News Roundup. Now, Susan, you wanted to draw attention to some activity around the Electoral Count Act and Senator and Senate Minority Leader Republican Mitch McConnell. What's happening? No more significant story this week, uh, Jen, in my view, uh, was the vote uh, in the Senate Rules Committee uh, to approve the Electoral Count Act, send it to the uh, to the floor of the Senate, and the endorsement by the Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, which basically guarantees, which we, we believe guarantees passage of this measure. This is an attempt to make it uh, impossible for what we saw, the attempted coup that we saw on January 6th to happen again. It clarifies that the vice president cannot overturn the results of the electoral count. He's there in a ceremonial role. And it raises the bar, the number of states needed, the number of lawmakers needed to protest a particular state's uh, electoral uh, votes um, and to, to, to delay and force a debate on them. This is uh, a, a sort of a common sense measure that could have great consequences in trying to clean up uh, some of the some of the weaknesses and vulnerabilities that became clear uh, in the 2020 election. Uh, only one senator on the Rules Committee voted against this, and that was Ted Cruz of Texas. But with McConnell's endorsement, uh, it should be on its way to passage. House, the House has already passed its version, a couple differences between them, but the, it's, not, it's not expected to be difficult to resolve those, and we think this will be done in the lame duck session of Congress. You know, earlier we were talking about some of the Republican candidates running in the midterms and their embrace of former President Trump and his lies about the 2020 election. I mean, Susan, what's your read of how congressional Republicans stand, where they stand on this issue today? Well, we've congressional almost all congressional Republicans either endorse the president's view, President Trump, former President Trump's view that the election wasn't legitimate, or they keep quiet about it. The number of Republicans in Congress who uh, who uh, say that election was legitimate, that Biden was a legitimately elected president, that there was no significant fraud, and that President Trump's uh, complaints about the election are groundless, they're few and far between, and several of them are actually going to be leaving after this Congress uh, concludes uh, and the new one takes over in January. Uh, and so this is a, you know, this is a, um, uh, a dangerous state of affairs for our democracy, it seems to me. Uh, and it's one of the things that we see the January 6th committee 
continuing to wrestle with as it moves toward holding its its final hearing, which got postponed this week because of the hurricane. Well, let's move to some other congressional activity. A new fiscal year for the government begins tomorrow, October 1st. And like we've seen before, Congress is waiting till the final days and hours to avoid a government shutdown. Yesterday, the Senate passed a stopgap spending measure to fund the government through December. The House is expected to vote today before the bill heads to the president's desk for a signature, all in the nick of time. In the Senate, Democrat Joe Manchin of West Virginia pulled his controversial climate measure from the spending bill in order to push it through. Anita, what are the details of that proposal that was axed? Yeah, um, it's, I, I'm sort of laughing because Congress is sort of like journalists, right? We wait till the last minute, <laughs> right when the deadline's coming up. Um, you know, this is uh, what Joe Manchin was trying to push through with sort of the deal he had struck with the Senate Majority Leader Ch- Chuck Schumer um, some weeks ago that uh, he agreed to uh, support the the bill, the Democratic bill that they were trying to push through uh, the Senate as long as uh, Chuck Schumer agreed to bring this up, uh, this bill up. And this was, um, it revo- reformed permitting for energy projects. Um, and uh, what we found was Republicans were, you know, we found that a lot of members of Congress sort of in in theory supported the idea of this, but then when they looked at the details, he even lost support from some of his fellow Democrats. And it's partly because there were specific uh actual energy projects that were going to be pushed through. And some of the senators didn't want what was going to be pushed through in their state, or they didn't like how that impacted their specific state. So what happened was that he was going to lose Republicans, a handful at least of Democrats, and he pulled it. He basically said, you know, please uh, come back to this later. We'll work on this, but I we can't hold up government funding uh, to get this through. So uh, the things that, that he had talked about... Um, to, to speed things up, we're, are going to have to wait until another time. Well, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont said, quote, this is a good day for the climate and the environment after the legislation was pulled. And here's Republican Mitch McConnell of Kentucky speaking on the Senate floor. This extraneous poison pill is not related to keeping the government open. It was not negotiated across the aisle. The poison pill is a phony attempt to address an important topic. Susan, what happens to Manchin's legislation next? Well, he'll continue to try to pursue it, I'm sure. He has, uh, he has uh, uh, been both very powerful and partly for that reason not particularly popular with many of his colleagues uh, because of his ability to get the legislation and the particular uh, West Virginia-friendly legislation that he wants to get through. Um, so I don't think he's given up on this, but I don't think we're going to see it again this year. Mm-hmm. Well, the House GOP urged its members to vote against the spending bill after it cleared the Senate, even without Senator Manchin's proposal included. Susan, why? I'm, I'm sorry, what, why? can you repeat that? Sure. So the House GOP didn't want its members to, to vote for the spending bill, even once Senator Manchin's proposal was pulled. Why were they urging its members to vote against it? So partly because it's something that they want the Democrats to have to support and pass on their own. That's There's a long tradition of that. Uh, a lot of Republicans uh, want uh, a leaner federal government, so they oppose some of the, the spending even in a continuing resolution. And the, the reason this is significant is not because they can prevent this particular spending bill from passing. It's that if they win control of the House uh, in the midterms, which is 
uh, not guaranteed, but might well happen, uh, they'll be on the hook for trying to pass these spending bills, raising the debt ceiling, some of these difficult votes that they've relied on Democrats to get through and given them kind of a free pass. So I think this is significant less for what it tells us about the vote today, uh, the vote at this moment, and more about the red flags it could raise for next year. I have to say, anytime we talk about funding the government, it seems we end up back in this place. It, It's getting increasingly familiar. But Molly, is there is there a danger in continuing to put off funding the government this way and, and brushing up against these possible government shutdowns over and over and over again? Well, yes, we and we have seen actual government shutdowns uh, result from this kind of, of posturing and this kind of uh, blowing of deadlines. Uh, and uh, at this time, there was not too much drama. I think at this point, some of the posturing is so sort of ingrained and baked into the the, uh, the process that it's almost like going through the motions. Uh, but uh, But there isn't going to be a shutdown this time. It seems pretty clear that this bill is going to get through the House. Uh, but as Susan said, we are going to see, if the, particularly if the House flips, a lot of drama in the next few years, not only around these issues of periodically funding the government. Uh, well, and by the way, this this spending bill right now is only for a few weeks. It only goes into the December. So in right. the length... That it's a, that's right. It's it's a continuing resolution. So so once we get into mid December, they're going to have to do it again, and that will be after the election. So that will be when we know how the vote has turned out, and when there that will certainly affect the calculations made by both parties in terms of what they think can get through and what they're willing to vote for. But we're also going to see the debt limit need to be raised with potentially a Republican House and a Democratic White House, and and that's a very dangerous thing uh, fiscally that we also saw happen in President Obama's term with the Republican House, that was a flashpoint where they saw it as a potential leverage point, And that really scared the markets and, uh, and and proved to be a problem. And then you also have a lot of House Republicans saying they want to do a lot of investigations of the administration. They want to potentially go to impeachment. Uh, and so there is going to be a lot of drama uh, after these elections, depending on how they turn out. Anita, is there any discussion or appetite in Congress to do things differently when it comes to, to funding the government. I'll talk about it, don't they? And then it doesn't really happen. I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, the the leadership and, and rank and file members, they don't they don't like this. They say they're gonna prevent this, uh, that it shouldn't work this way, and then it continues to happen. And, you know, it's been happening for a while, but it does seem in more recent years, you know, we've we see it every time. We sort of expect it every single time. I do think that you know, as Molly mentioned, we have actually seen shutdowns in recent years, and there was no way, uh, you know, this time, this close to the election, um, that either party wanted to have, uh, you know, a shutdown. I think they've seen not only, of course, the real life implications, which is, you know, federal employees, um, you know, not going to work, but also the worry from Americans that, you know, some of the services that they've grown, you know, to count on aren't going to be available you know, that they've also seen the political ramifications in that, you know, Americans are looking to who's to blame and they tend to blame one party or another and and no one wants that. So I think that we talk about these things and they talk about it, but that this possibility of a shutdown was never going to happen, not this close to an election where they're really concerned about how, you know, how that looks. 
Well, let's turn to some news from the FDA. On Wednesday, the agency announced new rules from, for nutrition labels on food packaging. Manufacturers can only label their products healthy if there's a substantial amount of food from at least one of the food groups recommended by the dietary guidelines. They must also follow certain limits around nutrients like sugar and saturated fat. Molly, how big is this change from how food nutrition labeling has historically worked? Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, currently, there are only about 5% of all uh, foods that get this quote-unquote healthy label. Uh, but as you might imagine, that's a very uh, contentious definition. And, and and frankly, anyone who's ever been on a diet knows that, that what you consider healthy food is very disputed. And there's a lot of different opinions about it. And the science keeps changing. And the experts have different opinions. Uh, so the, this, But this is a definition that the FDA has not revisited uh, since first defining it back in 1994. So they're going to uh, go back and uh, look at these dietary guidelines, talk about the levels of nutrition, of, of certain nutrients, you know, how much fat, how much sugar, and so on, and try to update these guidelines uh, based on based on new science. Uh, but it doesn't have a huge impact since it, did, it doesn't affect that many uh, food products to begin with. Well, finally, let's end on some space news. NASA tested out its planetary defense strategy by successfully slamming a spacecraft into an asteroid that was 7 million miles away. We got it? And we have impact. We finally for humanity in the name of planetary defense. Fantastic. Okay, I know a lot of us have seen the movie Armageddon. (laughs) So that's the first thing that came to mind for me. But Susan, what was the reason for this test? What did NASA learn? They wanted to learn if they could do it. I mean, how many movies have we seen uh, with asteroids hurling toward Earth and there's nothing that Earth can do about it? Uh, Maybe Superman movies uh, saw him as a hero. This was a demonstration that if that happened, there would be uh, the possibility of sending up a spacecraft ramming into the uh, asteroid and changing its trajectory, its course, so that it would not hit Earth. So I find this fantastic news. And at a time when we're sort of mired in so much bad news between hurricanes and politics, to look up to the skies and see this as a possibility, that's just great. I have to say, Anita, anytime we do a show on space exploration, on, you know, what NASA's doing up there. We always get pushback from some people in our audience who say, why are we spending money on this kind of work and research when we have so many problems here on Earth? What kind of response have you seen to this experiment? Yeah, no, I actually have seen people sort of cheering it on, right? I mean, I think a little bit it is sort of patriotic that people are wanting to know if we can do certain things, right? If the United States can can do this. But, you know, I do think that, you know, what NASA has said is there are actually thousands of potentially hazardous asteroids that could come close to the Earth's orbit, Um that could pose a problem. I should say none are currently known to be on the tra- trajectory here, but it, it is a problem that could happen. And so, you know, NASA is there to to try to deal with it. Uh, you know, I guess the reaction has been mixed, but I have also heard what you what you say, that there are a lot of people that wonder why uh, we spend, the United States spends so much uh, resources and, and money in, in NASA. And, um, 
you know, it's it's not something that people may be thinking about in their day-to-day life when they're going to the grocery store and looking at, at uh, prices increasing and things like that. But it is something um, that NASA is designed to do, and, and that's what they're doing. Well, and if an asteroid ever heads this way, we'll be very happy that test was successful. We've been speaking with Anita Kumar. She's senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Susan Page also with us today. She's Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. And Molly. Ball, the National Political Correspondent at Time Magazine. Anita, Susan, Molly, thanks to you all. And before we go, a moment of remembrance for Coolio. He died this week. He was 59. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. Because I've been blasting and laughing so long that even my mama thinks that my mind is The California rapper and producer rose to fame in the 1980s underground hip-hop scene, but by the 90s, he was a household name. His 1995 hit, Gangsta's Paradise, earned him a Grammy. This July, the song reached a billion streams on YouTube. Here's Coolio in his own words. It's not about what I originally meant the song to mean or, or be. Whatever it means to you, that's what the song is about. Again, Coolio was 59. You're listening to the News Roundup. Stay tuned. We'll be back with the global edition of the News Roundup in just a moment. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and it's time for the global edition of the News Roundup. Joining us this week, Jen Williams. She's a deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. Season two launched this week. Jen, it's great to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks. And Dave Lawler. Dave is world news editor at Axios. Dave, great to have you back on. Thanks for having me. So we'll catch up with the events that are unfolding in Russia in a moment, but let's start with the solidarity and brutality we're seeing in the streets of Iran. For nearly two weeks, protests have continued across the country following the death of Masa Amini. She died in custody after being arrested by members of Iran's morality police for quote-unquote unsuitable attire. The Norway-based group Iran Human Rights says at least 83 people have been killed as the authorities press ahead with their crackdown. These two women in Tehran spoke to France 24. They said their fight for freedom would continue. As an Iranian, my heart really aches seeing how hurt my people are. They're making their rightful demands. Internet is shut down in Iran, so that when the internet is down, they kill people in that silence easily. I have no more words to say. Everybody knows what kind of a country Iran is. We demand support from all, especially from women. Jen, walk us through the latest. Right. So as you said, you know, we're in the second week of these protests and we've basically just seen them kind of explode beyond, you know, the first initial protests we saw. So, you know, the earliest protests we saw took place after Amini's funeral on September 17th. We saw, you know, women waving their headscarves in the air in protest. We then saw it kind of spread to some other um, areas in the Kurdish populated Northwest area, which is where she was from. Um, we then saw them spread to Tehran, and now it's reached dozens of other cities. And it's basically evolved into what is the most serious challenge the Iranian regime has seen 
in years. I mean, we are seeing just widespread protests, a lot of, you know, these really moving, incredible videos on social media. Um, as they mentioned, you know, the internet is out in Iran, but there are videos that are making their way out um, on TikTok and, and other social media sites, et cetera, through friends and uh, secure messaging apps. And we are just seeing this incredible uprising. And it's it's moved beyond just, you know, a, a a protest about specifically Amini's death and has really become a, an actual challenge to the establishment. We're seeing chants of women, life, freedom. We're seeing chants of death to the dictator um, in reference to the supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. And, you know, it's also spread even to like filmmakers, athletes, musicians, actors. I mean, we are seeing this really kind of widespread uprising. And of course, the flip side of that is we are seeing the Iranian government crack down absolutely brutally as expected, you know, firing live live rounds, live bullets against protesters. We've heard the death toll, right? You know, thousands have been arrested, um, more than more than 1,200 so far, uh, including uh, according just to state media. And human rights groups say it's probably a lot more. So we're really seeing this kind of big clash happening right now on the ground. Well, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi has ordered an investigation into Amini's death and called it a tragedy. But this week, he did not offer the same sympathy to protesters. He says, quote, those who want to create chaos in the country and endanger people's security are unacceptable, end quote. Dave, as best we know, is there a sense that the authorities have been taken aback by the scale of these protests? We're sort of reading between the lines on a lot of this. Uh, We know, as was mentioned previously, that they have uh, shut down the Internet in a lot of cases, which makes it even harder to see exactly what's happening on the streets and exactly how authorities are cracking down. Uh, You know, as Jen was saying, these protests go right to the heart of the regime. You know, woman, life, freedom uh, is the sort of uh, big chant in the streets. Um, This is obviously sparked by... Uh, you know, mandatory hijab. Uh, Masa Amini was uh, accused of not dressing properly. She was arrested by the morality police. These are things that, uh, you know, this relatively young population with this 43-year-old regime led by octogenarians in a lot of cases, you know, they're they're, uh, really challenging, uh, you know, sort of the core tenets of the regime. Uh, President Raisi says this is all sort of stirred up by the West. Um, The regime has hit back at some of the celebrities who have quite publicly come out in support of the protest, including actually uh, the national soccer team, which was a significant step. They came out wearing their black warm-up uniforms for the national anthem instead of their, um, you know, regular uniforms for the game. So, they seem to feel the need to crack down hard. Again, you know, we don't know for sure how much concern there is at the high, at the upper echelons of the regime. But based on their actions, I think uh, we can interpret that there is, in fact, quite a bit of concern. Earlier this week, Iran's foreign minister told NPR's Steve Inskeep that these protests won't result in regime change. But Jin, is this a possible tipping point? I mean, you know, I'm very hesitant to, to ever predict, um, you know, the the downfall of the regime. We have seen protests happen before. We have seen widespread protests um, and the regime has survived. Um, you know, it's certainly possible. Um, but again, you know, the, the power of the regime, I think it's really important to point out here when Raisi says that we're going to have an investigation, it's going to be transparent. We're going to present the results. Um, 
that is absurd on its face. The idea that the, the regime would do anything remotely transparent related to this goes against the actual heart of the power of the regime. The way the regime keeps power, the way it keeps people under control is through the use of force, is through authority, is through things like this morality police and showing people that you will be dealt with with violence if you challenge our power. And so the idea that there would be some kind of transparent investigation um, is just patently false and absurd. And it goes to the point that, you know, the regime is held together by the use of force and control and authoritarian power. And so, yes, we are seeing this big, huge uprising, but it's important to remember the regime has a lot of power, has a lot of people who are very heavily armed and very loyal to the regime. Well, of course, with Iran, there's always plenty of politics. Speaking to Fox News earlier this week, Republican Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas called on President Biden to get tougher on Iran. This is a moment to stand with the people of Iran, both because they deserve freedom from these theocratic dictators and because it would be in America's interests if the Ayatollahs no longer governed Iran. Yet Joe Biden is doing in these protests exactly what Barack Obama did in the summer of 2009. He is standing idly by because he doesn't want to offend the Ayatollahs. What we should do is announce our support for them, impose new sanctions on those who are murdering innocent protesters in the streets, and to say that under no terms will we re-enter this nuclear deal. Dave, put these protests in the context of America's relationship with Iran right now. Sure. So the Biden administration took office with one big priority when it came to Iran, and that was restoring the 2015 nuclear deal, which Donald Trump pulled out of Republican hawks like Tom Cotton don't want that deal to be restored in part because they argue that sanctions will be lifted. The regime will have more money. They'll be more repressive at home. They'll be more aggressive overseas. This is the argument uh, basically against getting back into the deal. So the administration uh, seemed until pretty recently to be in the kind of crunch phase of getting that deal across the line. Now we've run into some obstacles. They have to decide uh, really after the midterms, I think it's been kicked, you know, how hard uh, to push to get that deal across the finish line. And so that is part of the context for what Republicans are coming out and saying. There's also this aspect that the Biden administration uh, has kind of subtly mentioned, which is if they come out and say, we stand with these protesters, it doesn't necessarily help uh, because the Iranian regime wants to paint this as a Western-backed, as a U.S.-backed movement. Uh, And so publicly aligning yourself with the protesters may actually work against, uh, you know, the protests in some extent. But there is also this issue of what are all these sanctions we have on Iran for? Uh, The Biden administration would say it's to get them to not develop a nuclear weapon. It's to put pressure, it's to get them into a deal. What Tom Cotton was referencing there is the idea that we should be pursuing a pressure strategy to get rid of the regime, um, you know, to try to topple the regime. uh, Mike Pompeo, when he was was Secretary of State, made similar comments along those lines. Um, So that's all sort of happening in the background when it comes to how the U.S. responds to big protests like we're seeing right now in Iran. Now, Jen, you said the crackdown on the protests has included restricting access to the Internet. Reports say the Iranian government is shutting down Internet access for multiple hours a day, and it's blocking Instagram and WhatsApp. The U.S. has eased Internet sanctions on Iran, and on a visit to India this week, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken provided some more detail. We announced a general license uh, to facilitate the free flow of information inside Iran. So, for example, what this does is 
It authorizes companies to provide things like cloud services, uh, privacy technology, security technology, hardware and software to enable the Iranians to better communicate among themselves and also with the rest of the world. Jen, what more do we know about U.S. attempts to make the Internet more accessible to people in Iran? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think this is a great step in terms of uh, symbolic, you know, we do support this in a way that we are going to try to help you with communications. I think, you know, as Dave was saying, it's very difficult for the U.S. to openly support the protests themselves. However, in reality, a lot of this does require hardware. So it's not like we're going to just send a bunch of people from Comcast over to start laying down cable for internet in the middle of Iran. Um, you know, it, in theory, it's great, but in practice, it could be a very long time, if at all, before we see actual improvement in internet services because of this. Well, let's move now to some developments we're watching in Moscow. Earlier today, Russian President Vladimir Putin formally annexed four regions in Ukraine. That's after st- staging self-styled referendums that were illegal under international law. Jen, what's happened today? So today, uh, Vladimir Putin gave one of the wildest speeches I've probably ever heard from from an international leader and probably one of the craziest I've heard from Putin himself. Mm. Um, It was this long, like 37-minute diatribe against the West. It was ostensibly he was announcing and then signing these, uh, you know, treaties to formally annex these four territories, uh, the Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and and Kherson. Um, But he barely even talked about Ukraine and talked about these territories. Uh, He did eventually kind of touch on it, but it was this very long, bizarre, um, you know, accusing the West of Satanism, um, just a whole lot of stuff. Uh, he officially, I know we're going to talk about the Nord Stream pipelines. He accused the U.S. of being behind that. All sorts of things going into this kind of bizarre interpretations of history that he has. Um, it was one of the just kind of most unhinged things. I, I know a lot of Russia watchers I you know I follow on Twitter were also saying, like, this is really disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as, again, this was this big celebration that was supposed to announce um, this, you know, annexation, official annexation, this big speech saying, you know, and he did. He did say, "Look, these people are officially our compatriots. These the people in these regions are officially Russia. They will be forever. They're our compatriots forever." So it was this big kind of grand thing. But I guess Putin can't really help himself and is just really showing that he refuses to back down. That he is absolutely committed to this lie, this farce. Uh, it was just a really just odd spectacle this morning. Well, and Dave, just remind us what we saw around these these self-styled referendums and what reports we heard about what was actually happening in Ukraine. Sure. So these are four regions of eastern and southern Ukraine. Uh, Russia partially occupies uh, the four regions. They actually don't have total military control of these places, but in the areas they do control, they've put in uh, these governments, you know, so-called governments um, uh, in the past few months that have held the area. They built up to these votes um, where the Russian-backed authorities, uh, at some, in some cases at gunpoint, uh, you know, called people out to vote, claimed that they overwhelmingly voted to join Russia. Uh, and then Putin went out today and said, great, um, you know, the consensus is clear. These four territories of Ukraine, which is about 15% of Ukraine's national territory, uh, that's now Russia and Ukraine. You can negotiate peace with us, but these four territories are off the table. We're taking these four territories, which again, we don't We don't actually hold uh, completely, and we're now defending against Ukrainian counterattacks in these areas. But 
uh, never mind all that. They're now Russia. Uh, and so any future peace agreement is going to have to concede that these territories are part of Russia. I think we should note also that it's not because these are historically tied to Russia. It's because that's where the Russian troops are right now. If they'd made it to Odessa, uh, he would have had a referendum in Odessa. You know, if they still held Kharkiv um, in the east where Ukraine has had this very successful counterattack, we can bet that there would be referendums there for them to join Russia. This is, uh, you know, not something that as a matter of law anybody should take seriously, but in terms of the implications for the future of the conflict, it is quite a significant day. A Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, was asked earlier this week if Russia would use nuclear weapons to defend the territories they annex, and this was his response. The entire territory of the Russian Federation, which is enshrined and could be further enshrined in the constitution of the Russian Federation, unquestionably is under the full protection of the state. That is absolutely natural, and all of the laws, doctrines, concepts, and strategies of the Russian Federation apply to all of its territory. But the response from lawmakers in Kyiv has been defiant. Here's Ukrainian MP Alexei Goncharenko. This week he told Sky News that Ukraine would fight for every inch of their land. This is the only way to come back to international order and to international law. If uh, the situation will go another way, if Putin would be successful in any way, that will mean that we don't have a world with the order in it, with international law. This will be the world like a wild jungles, with a bear, with a tiger, hunting for peaceful nations. So the response clear from Ukraine there. But Jen, this wasn't exactly a surprise. What should we expect the U.S. and others to do about it? Well, we've already seen the U.S. and uh, European Union member countries all come out very strongly and say we you know, firmly reject this annexation. This is illegal. This is not real. This is not a thing. Uh, you can't do this. You can't do this at the barrel of a gun. It's patently illegal to hold these kind of referendums and to do this kind of annexation in occupied territory. Um, you know, And they have continued. The U.S. is upping additional aid to Ukraine. I think we're going to see this as very much just a further kind of doubling down on the U.S. and Western support for Ukraine. I think it is important to note, um, while Ukrainian MPs, you know, and the Ukrainian government was very defiant, there were some, uh, I guess, sort of dark humor. One Ukrainian MP was joking, like, basically, don't mind me, I'm just sitting here Googling how to survive a nuclear attack. You know, there is some very real concern, right? Mm -hmm. So while there is defiance, it's not nothing to have someone, you know, making veiled or not so veiled nuclear threats. And the point is, you know, too, that now that Russia has declared that this part, the these territories are Russia, the the fear there is that, okay, well, now if you're fighting to retake these, even though Ukraine says this is Ukraine and so does the rest of the world, the majority, um, you know, Russia is like, no, if you're attacking Russian soil, then that's where the fear of nuclear escalation comes in. So that's part of what Russia is doing is trying to consolidate its, its you know, wins so far so that it doesn't further lose. Um, I think, you know, we've seen some talk in the U.S. There has been some, a bit of debate among nuclear strategists, um, you know, outside government talk talking to people inside government about whether the U.S. needs to be a little bit more forthcoming in terms of how it would respond, saying openly how it would respond to a nuclear strike Um, inside the Biden administration. I'm sure that is a conversation they are having quite often. Uh, There's obviously you, you know, don't want to escalate to that point. So, you know, nuclear brinksmanship is, is really where we've kind of entered right now. And it's a really disturbing situation that we haven't really seen since the Cold War. Um, it's not something to take lightly, but it's also 
also not something that I think we need to worry is going to happen necessarily tomorrow. Well, we got this comment from Dan who says NATO membership for Ukraine is the appropriate response to Putin's sham annexation of Ukrainian territory. Dave, what are we hearing on that front? Uh, So uh, President Zelensky did come out today and respond to Putin's speech, and he called for uh, a session into NATO for Ukraine. Uh, The reason we haven't seen a serious discussion around that is because, um, you know, there's this Article 5 uh, under which all NATO members have to uh, defend another NATO member that's attacked. Ukraine is currently fighting a war. So does that mean if they're into NATO, the U.S. and all of our NATO allies have to send troops into Ukraine to fight that war? Um, that's really why the NATO discussion hasn't moved forward. Um, you know, but from the Ukrainian perspective, Zelensky also said, uh, you know, Putin basically said, we're willing to discuss peace, but we're not going to discuss these four areas. Zelensky said, we're willing to discuss peace, but not with this Russian president. So uh, he put his cards on the table a bit there as well. But as Jen was saying, you know, Putin said in his speech that the U.S. set a precedent when it used nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, That's a very clear warning from him that he's willing to escalate uh, up to a nuclear strike. The question is, you know, is this just brinksmanship from Putin? Obviously, he wants us to believe that he's willing to use a nuclear weapon. Uh, Do we want to gamble that he actually is willing to use it? Right now, though, from the Ukrainian perspective, from the U.S.-NATO perspective, the idea is that you can't give in to what they're calling nuclear blackmail. You can't change the way that you wage this war or the, the way that you support Ukraine as they wage this war just because Putin is dangling his nuclear weapons out there. But again, as Jen said, we've sort of entered a new phase here where directly, you know, pretty clearly the Kremlin is putting this idea that this could escalate to a nuclear conflict on the table. Well, amidst these latest developments, satellite images out of Russia this week showed a 10-mile-long line of cars and trucks trying to leave the country. Putin has attempted to mobilize 300,000 men to fight in Ukraine. That sparked protests across Russia, and it's led many to flee to Turkey and Georgia. This week, The Daily, that's a podcast from The New York Times, spoke to a 24-year-old Russian based in Moscow who was planning to get out. This is part of his exchange with host Sabrina Tavernisi. I've already decided that it's better to go to jail than to go off to that absolutely insane and senseless war. Why is it such a terrifying thought for you, being in Ukraine in a Russian uniform? It's not even about the fear of being killed, but of killing someone. Jen, what's happening in Russia right now in response to this partial mobilization? Um, We're seeing reports that it's targeting ethnic minorities in rural areas of the country. Right. It's it definitely disproportionately falling on ethnic minorities, as Russian wars have traditionally. A lot of, you know, the mobilization even up till now um, has been, you know, a, a lot of people from rural areas, a lot of people, um, you know, from ethnic minorities in Siberia, etc. It's fairly traditional for Russia to do that. Um, you know, and I think we're seeing more generally, you know, when this war was initially sold to the Russian people by Vladimir Putin, it was the special limited special operation that was supposed to be, you know, limited in scale and in scope. And I think for a certain, you know, amount of time and to a certain number of people, it seemed like as long as it didn't really touch their lives, everyday lives, 
then it wasn't that big of a deal. Yes, there were some small protests, and obviously they were cracked down on um, brutally. But once this major mobilization, the first national mobilization since World War II in Russia, I mean, this was a really big deal. All of a sudden, people are like, wait a second, I have to go to war? I was just hanging out, like living my life. And, you know, I think it's also the case that Putin is likely not able to hide as much as he would probably like to in terms of how the war is going. You know, if the war were going well, you probably wouldn't need to suddenly call up 300,000 people. And so we are seeing this kind of massive fleeing of people who may not have even necessarily opposed the war initially or maybe just didn't think about it all that much, right? Russia is a huge place and not everyone was being called into war. Now, all of a sudden, it's affecting people's direct daily lives. And so we're seeing people go, whoa, wait a second, I got to get out of here. Now, maybe you've seen those pictures shared around the world this week from the Baltic Sea. A series of explosions on the Nord Stream pipelines between Russia and Europe are widely believed to be an act of sabotage. NATO has now formally blamed Moscow. The Kremlin says, why would it blow up something that's so important to Russia and its economy? Jen, what's the latest information we have? And do we know why NATO is pointing the finger at Russia? So here's the thing. We don't actually have a ton of evidence um, that is being presented publicly about even, you know, what exactly happened. We know that they're calling it sabotage. I think it's important to note that it's still really dangerous at the site of where these these explosions happened, right? There's still methane, like, spewing from this four leaks in these pipelines. And so it's not like it's something where, you know, a bomb went off and it's the fire's out and you can go start researching, right? This is deep undersea. This is a very difficult area to get to and it's very dangerous. So in terms of, you know, figuring that out, um, the actual evidence... Uh, as far as what, you know, I and the rest of reporters and the public have is pretty scant. Um, you know, even when they're saying it's it's sabotage, they weren't really providing a lot of evidence or anything like that as to how they've come to that. Now, in terms of assigning blame, we did, as I mentioned earlier, hear Russian President Vladimir Putin this morning in his speech this morning, our time, um, say bluntly that he's blaming the United States. And, you know, he didn't provide any evidence. Again, we don't have a ton of evidence yet on on what's going on. It's going to take a long time. But I think what we're seeing is the politics of this, the, you know, figuring out who could be to blame, pointing fingers and trying to deflect blame as well. You know, obviously, if if Putin is pointing the finger at the U.S., the U.S. is going to say, no, that wasn't us. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think as soon as it happened, we already heard, you know, some pundits and even some governments immediately pointing to Moscow. Now, it's really confusing to me, honestly, as someone who does this for a living and who follows this. You know, even as as kind of, you know, far out there as Putin's strategy in the war has been and, and some of the just boneheaded moves that he's made strategically, it still is just hard for me to wrap my head around the idea. It feels like cutting off your nose to spite your face, right? The idea of bombing. I mean, these, these pipelines cost like millions of dollars for Gazprom, the Russian-owned um, gas company, to build. And so the idea of sabotaging that. Now, the, the argument is that, you know, Putin is doing this as essentially showing that I can cut off gas, you know, gas supplies to Europe and you better not mess with me or I'll, you know, bomb these these pipelines, et cetera, if that is the motivation, if Russia did indeed do it. It's just, it's still a little bit murky. Well, Morton Badshoff is the Danish foreign minister. Here's what he had to say. We're in a serious situation in Europe. We've long been aware that the Baltic Sea is an area of high attentions. Look at the rhetoric around Finland and Sweden's membership of NATO. The Baltic Sea is an area where you have to expect this. Dave, was this expected? 
I certainly didn't expect it. I think that, um, you know, as Jen was saying, some of the confusion is about, uh, you know, if you had to point your finger at somebody who would be likely to make this move, you know, Russia is the first person you'd point to because uh, they've been taking such a wide range of sort of hybrid war tactics even before this invasion. Uh, the logic that I've heard is that either they wanted to, you know, Putin wants to show how serious he is about escalation, how willingly, how willing he is to push this up the ladder. And so blowing up these pipelines, severing uh, the energy link to Europe is a clear warning on that front. Uh, but from the, but also, you know, from the European perspective, they need gas from Europe to make it through uh, next winter, if not this winter. Uh, so, you know, it's clearly one of the tools that he has left at his disposal to put pressure on Europe. Well, we should also note that this could be a big deal for climate change. The Danish Energy Agency announced that in a worst case scenario, the greenhouse gases released by the leaks could equal 30% of Denmark's annual emissions. And I want to bring in one more guest for updates on an important election. Maurizio Savarese is an AP correspondent in Brazil. He joins us from Sao Paulo. He's also the author of Dilma's Downfall, the impeachment of Brazil's first woman president and the pathway to power for Jair Bolsonaro's far right. Maurizio, welcome to 1A. Thanks for having me. So on Sunday, Brazilians go to the polls in an election that pits incumbent Jair Bolsonaro against leftist former president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Opinion polls this week showed Lula holding a commanding lead. If no one wins the majority of the votes, a second round of voting is scheduled for October 30th. This election has polarized the country, Maurizio, with Bolsonaro's supporters painting his rival as a communist and Lula's backers viewing the president as a right-wing radical. Give us a sense of the mood in Brazil right now? Well, this is the first election ever we have a former president running against an incumbent president. So a lot of people are already deciding on on what they will do. So the polls haven't really changed much since June last year uh, with a little swing here, a little swing there, but uh, not dramatically changed. And now we're reaching the day of the vote, a decisive day last night uh, uh, with the debate uh, on TV Global, which is Brazil's most popular. Uh, Bolsonaro needed to come swinging and he was really aggressive uh, in most of it. Uh, Former President Lula tried to keep his cool, but he lost it with uh, one of the uh, candidates that uh, doesn't have any support, uh, I think less than 1%. Uh, People thought that uh, former President Lula would have a better chance of having an outright victory if he had, uh, had a better performance in the debate. Uh, That did not materialize, but uh, it doesn't seem either that Bolsonaro managed to bring more votes to his camp. He's still speaking to his base, uh, which I think American voters will understand uh, from from previous debates in American elections. So that's the state uh, of the race. Uh, We we really don't know what's going to happen, whether there's going to be a runoff or not. But former President Lula seems to be the favorite to win uh, in the end. Bolsonaro is campaigning on the same slogan he ran on in 2018, Brazil above of all God above everyone, and he bills himself as an anti-corruption leader, often referring to his opponent as a thief. Lula is contesting this election after legal troubles of his own, and he's trying to harken back to better times in Brazil, a healthy and thriving middle class. Explain more about each of the candidates' platforms. Well, former President, uh, former President Lula was was jailed four years ago when he tried to run for the fifth time. So this is his fifth uh, run now, and he really. Uh, had uh, a very different four years uh, than, than the than the latest uh, uh, incidents he had with the with the justice in Brazil. I mean, uh, for, uh, for 
Judge uh, Sergio Moro was commanding a very uh, massive corruption probe named uh, Car Wash. Uh, he was considered biased in his trials uh, of Lula da Silva, which allowed now the president to run for office and see uh, Bolsonaro, who was a staunch supporter of the car wash operation, having legal troubles uh, now. So uh, a lot of Brazilians really think that the impeachment of former president Dilma Rousseff and uh, Lula's jailing uh, were unfair. And now they are trying to uh, shoot Lula back into office as a sort of a reward for what happened in the last few years plus the memories from his administrations between 2003 and 2010. And, for, and President Bolsonaro is trying to stop exactly that because he uh, advocates for not only Christian values, conservative values, but also against the return of the Workers' Party to the presidency. He's uh, basically, basically claiming to his base that that would be the same as allowing the thieves back into the safe. Uh, he claims his administration is, is not corrupt, uh, unlike uh, Lula da Silva's and, and former President Dilma Rousseff as well. But um, but that's that's not what we've seen in the media. There's there's corruption allegations against his administration as well, and some of them uh, against the president himself, who uh, is accused of buying more than 50 uh, pieces of land, uh, real estate, and uh, apartments only with cash, which is raising a lot of suspicions as well. So there's 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 dirt for both sides. Uh, uh, there's there's a lot of um, appeal to the hearts of, of Brazilians who are very much decided. Uh, we haven't seen much change, uh, but Bolsonaro's staunch supporters are one-third of the electorate. Lula's staunch supporters are one-third of the electorate, and apparently the former president has done a better job in bringing moderates to his side. That's why his running mate is a former adversary of his, uh, former Sao Paulo governor, Geraldo Alckmin, and that's why the race is at the state it is now. Well, for months, President Bolsonaro has been making unfounded allegations that Brazil's electronic voting system is vulnerable to widespread fraud. This is a line that will be very familiar to people here in the U.S. Is he setting the stage to dispute the election result? Well, that's what uh, has been reported, and that's what he's done over the last few weeks. He's tried to soften his tone a little uh, when, he's, when he noticed he had a better appeal with moderate voters uh, if he did not bring that allegation, which is unfounded. Uh, back to his speeches and, and to his election narrative. Uh, but now the polls really don't suggest he's going to make much gain. And uh, now he's swinging back to his old uh, narrative of uh, this could be a fraudulent election. You see that in, in messaging apps uh, spread by supporters of the of the president. And uh, that's, that's likely to be his claim at some point. So people are really thinking that uh, this Sunday uh, we're going to see a very fast election count, which uh, always happens in Brazil since the 90s because of the electronic voting system, but also uh, a lack of concession from Bolsonaro, at least in the first moment, uh, unless something very different from what we've seen over the last uh, three years uh, happens this Sunday. Maurizio, before we let you go, give us a sense of what you'll be watching for over the next 48 hours. Well, we'll be we'll be watching if any moderate voters make a, make a dramatic change uh, and pick one of those two, either to avoid uh, of an outright victory for Lula, and we'll we'll know that from two polls that will come on Saturday, one day before the election, uh, and we'll also be watching what the military does if it does send any signals. The military was not a part of Brazil's political life uh, since 1985, when the 21-year military dictatorship ended. 
But now everyone, every journalist has to know the name of generals, retired or on active duty, because people are concerned about uh, the, sway, the sway that Bolsonaro might have over them to question the election. So we'll be watching those two things uh, over the next 48 hours. That's Maurizio Savarese. He's an AP correspondent in Brazil and author of Dilemma's Downfall, the impeachment of Brazil's first woman president and the pathway to power for Jair Bolsonaro's far right. Maurizio, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Dave, several Biden officials have publicly praised Brazil's voting system. Independent Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont has led a resolution in support of Brazilian democracy. What kind of relationship can the U.S. look to have with either a second-term Bolsonaro or a Lula presidency? Right. Yeah. And as you mentioned, they're trying to preempt what they expect will be a denial of the results from Bolsonaro if indeed he does Lose. Uh, from Bolsonaro, the relationship with Biden has been awkward. Bolsonaro was quite a pro US president when he was elected, but that was in the Trump era. Uh, he does not see eye to eye with Biden when it comes to issues like democracy for one or protecting the Amazon, environmental issues. Uh, you know, they have not exactly gotten along, although Bolsonaro is a more natural ally, perhaps. Then Lula, when it comes to another U.S. priority in Latin America, which is competing with China for influence, Lula has in the past advocated quite close ties, economic ties with China. He actually made some comments defending uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, or at least saying that NATO had uh, some blame to take for that invasion on the campaign trail. So, you know, he is a veteran leftist. He comes from a much different uh, worldview than Bolsonaro and uh, from Biden when it comes to the U.S. role in Latin America. So there might be some awkward moments there. If I had to bet, if you polled people around the West Wing on what they hope will happen, though, I think there's a lot more sympathy for Lula in the administration than there is for Bolsonaro. Well, let's turn to the results of another election. Fresh from her victory over the weekend, Italy's Georgia Maloney is now figuring out who will get to do what in the new government. Here in Washington, the Biden administration promised to work with Italy's likely new prime minister and her governing coalition. But there's international concern about the fascist roots of the party Maloney now leads. Jen, remind us who we're talking about here and her party. Right. So Maloney, uh, she's this far right firebrand. Uh, Her party is called the Brothers of Italy. They received the most votes in elections on Sunday. As you said, she's going to be, you know, basically heading the country's most right wing government since the era of fascist leader Benito Mussolini. Um, You know, it's a very big uh, development. Um, the the party was born from the ashes of the Italian social movement, which was founded by people who were openly nostalgic for the Mussolini era. So it's definitely um, concerning for uh, a lot of the more um, democratically minded countries in the West. Um, she is pretty popular right now. Um, she, her appeal is basically uh, down to a few things. One, she's young, she's media savvy, she's you know seen as kind of down to earth. But most importantly, she's seen as not having flip-flopped on her positions the way basically all of her rivals have, um, all the other parties. So she's basically seen as having been consistent on her policies. And there's a lot of kind of disillusionment with all the other politicians and parties that have flip-flopped so much in the in the past few years. Um, she, her party, the Brothers of Italy, was the only significant political force that stayed out of the Mario Draghi-led uh, unity government that fell back in July. So she's kind of seen as untainted by that. All of that said, you know, whether she'll be able to maintain 
her coalition. We have seen a lot of leaders in Italy rise uh, in recent years, only to be dashed down pretty quickly afterward. So I think it remains to be seen whether she's actually going to have the staying power that you know I'm sure she would like to have. We should mention Maloney was invited to speak at a CPAC conference held earlier this year in Orlando. There she attacked what she called the woke agenda from progressives and made her views on immigration abundantly clear. I see unbelievable things happening on the border between United States and Mexico. And I think of our own Sicily. Thousands of migrants allowed to enter without permission, crowding out the slums of our towns and cities, undercutting the salaries of our own workers, and in many instances engaging in crime. Will we surrender in front of this? No, we won't. We will fight it standing tall. Dave, why was Maloney at CPAC? Maloney has kind of made common cause with the American right in recent years. She, some of her rhetoric sounds pretty similar on things like social issues. She talks about the LGBT lobby, uh, you know, attacks on the traditional Italian family, you know, that you can't say you're a Christian anymore. Things that uh, people who follow American politics closely uh, will have heard from mainly Republican candidates. Um, she is, you know, now that she's entering the mainstream. You know, she's been an outsider for her entire political career. Now she's probably going to be prime minister. She has moderated her rhetoric somewhat, particularly when it comes to the war uh, in Ukraine. She says she'll stand by Ukraine. She won't be, uh, you know, sort of a lackey for Putin. But when it comes to issues like immigration, she's keeping up her hardline rhetoric. She's advocated some pretty draconian policies uh, for uh, to stop people from arriving you know, across the Mediterranean on Italy's shores. So it is a little bit difficult to know if she'll govern more as this kind of centrist uh, center-right figure she claims that she was ahead of the election, uh, or if we'll see you know, another more kind of outspoken voice from the global far right. Uh, again, she still has to establish a government first. In Italy, that's not that simple. And as Jen said, Previous Italian leaders in recent years have been out within a year or two, so she'll have to try to build a more stable coalition than her predecessors have. Uh, but I think there is you know, some concern, as you mentioned, about her ties uh, to the far right, her party's ties to sort of this post-fascist ideology. Uh, but also there is a kind of a wait and see. I was talking to an Italian diplomat who, who was not actually, or sorry, a European diplomat in Brussels who was not actually that worried yet about uh, Maloney being a threat to, to Italy's role within the EU, things like that. Uh, so there's kind of a wait and see uh, approach to Maloney right now on the continent. Well, let's wrap on the biggest scandal chess has seen in decades. Magnus Carlsen, the current world champion, has accused American Hans Niemann of cheating in past games and lying about it. Now, Niemann did admit to cheating when he was 12 and 16 in what he said were inconsequential games, but he denies foul play when he played and beat Carlsen recently. Very quickly, Dave, how common is it in the world of chess to make these allegations? Uh, very common online, not common when it comes to very high level competition, you know, across the board from one another. So this, uh, you know, as far as I understand it, has been a bombshell in the world of chess. Um, and, you know, now people are speculating about if he did cheat, how would he have done it? He, of course, says that he didn't cheat. Um, 
but yeah, this is this has definitely been one of the biggest headlines out of chess world uh, that I've seen any time recently. Well, chess grandmaster Maurice Ashley spoke to our friends at the PBS NewsHour earlier this week. Ashley told PBS that players are screened for electronics before entering any big competition, but... What if they have a device hidden in their ear or somewhere on their person where somebody else on the outside, an accomplice, is watching the game live during a broadcast and is maybe sending some kind of signal? One buzz means a bishop, two buzzes means a knight. Players like Hans are good enough to figure it out on their own with just that scant information by itself. Okay, Jen, think very carefully about this before you answer. But any theories about how one might might cheat at chess? Uh, so there are some <clears throat> theories that have been posed out there on the internet. Uh, I maybe wouldn't Google it, but there are some theories about places where one could put an electronic device. I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, look, you know, in a past famous chess match, somebody was concerned that the delivery of a blueberry yogurt to one of the players could have been an attempt at cheating. So God only knows. I'm a shoots and ladders girl. So, you know, <laughs> and I cheat all the time. So, you know, who knows what happened, but, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Well, the next time we're, we'll get, we're together, we can play shoots and ladders, but you've got to play Uno with me because that's my game. That's Jen Williams. She's deputy editor at Foreign Policy. Also with us today, Dave Lawler, world news editor at Axios. Jen, Dave, Thanks for speaking with us. And earlier, we connected with Maurizio Savarese. He covers Brazil for the Associated Press. So thanks to everyone today. Aileen Humphreys is the producer of 1A On Demand. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. And Matthew Simonson has been producing our on-demand shows. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us. This is 1A.